Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. I am not here. You're not here in Los Angeles. That's right. This is mere minutes after we've recorded our last episode. Right. Which So there's no new news on the live show yet. Right. Um, As of right now, should we plug it again? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We're going to plug it every week. February okay. 6th, 8 p.m., Meltdown Comics on Sunset Boulevard. That's the one on Sunset, not the one in Eagle Rock. Because that one's very small. When you go there, you'll find me. <laughs> sure. David. I'll be there, yeah. Ed Salazar. Friend of the show. Josh Fadum. Great friend of the show. Not to shit on Ed, but Josh's been on more. Yeah. Paul Rust. And we just like him better. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How could you not? Paul Rust. Friend yeah. of the show, technically. We don't actually like him at all. That is true. He's kind of a jerk. Don't let <laughs> everything that he's ever said uh, fool you. He's actually yeah. Don't uh, let the fact that he walks around being really nice and friendly to everyone fool you. <laughs> right, that guy's yeah. a dick. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, of course, our headliner, friend of the show, Jimmy, Jimmy Pardo. Pardo. So, so yeah, exciting. that's uh, it's five bucks to get in. There'll be free beer um, if you're 21 and over. Uh, the The comic book store should be open, I think, at least at least beforehand and during the beginning of the show. Yeah. Uh, so you get there early, buy some awesome comic books from Meltdown Comics. They're a really great store. Now, David, after the show is over. Are we allowed to just hang around? What do you mean allowed? I mean, are they going to kick us out? The I mean, you and me. Are they going to kick us out the minute the show is over? I don't know. I've been to plenty of shows there, and I usually end up hanging around a little bit All afterwards. Right. So listeners could come up and ask us questions. Yeah. I guess that'd be okay with me. Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> you get to you get some FaceTime with the listener. Okay. I'm a private person. I know. You, well, they're not going to ask you, like, really personal questions. They'll say, hey, what are you, stupid? You didn't like this movie? Or, you know. Stu- In fact, actually, I may have talked myself out of this just yeah. now. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Of course, if, yeah. if, you're, if you're a fan of the, if you're actually there for us and not for the comedians, which I can't fathom, mm. uh, and, you're, and you're a fan of the show, sure, talk to us. Yeah. But, you know, you can also get this. Uh, be, if you've been listening to us for a while and you've never met uh, a Josh Fadum yeah. or a Paul Rust or an Ed Salazar, uh, they're going to be there. Yeah. You know? Jimmy Pardo's going to be there. He probably won't hang around too long. I don't imagine. <laughs> that's I th- me. I d- okay, I'm just joking. I somehow get the feeling he'll stop in the middle of his set and leave. Um, uh, that's... Okay, I hope he... I, he doesn't listen. But uh, <laughs> no. if anyone tells him that, we're we're joking. Yes. yes Jimmy's a really nice man, and it was really nice of him to to yep. do this for us. So, um, that's that. Anyway, you are not here. I am in not In Los here. Angeles. Uh, as of right now... Where are you? I am in Bogota, Colombia. Yeah? Are you having fun, do you think? <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Okay. What are you eating? <laughs> um, I, I'm sure... Now, you don't think this has come up before. I'm sure it must have come up before. But... Tyler, we did do an episode on food, but I feel like we might have uh, sidestepped this this topic. Okay. Well, the, for those who don't know, Tyler is the pickiest of picky eaters. That's true. He's worse than a child. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I like... You don't have to like it. It's true. <laughs> Here's the, okay, hang on a second. <laughs> a child will not try things. I will try things within, of course, reason. I'm not going to eat a tongue or anything. David enjoys eating cow tongue. I, I don't understand right? why. It's just another part of the animal. Why is why is the part that's like, why is one part of a dead thing okay to eat and the other part is not okay to eat? Because one part's the tongue. <laughs> I don't get how that's any worse. But I remember you, you once described eating... Uh, and you you like it, but you had one that was like just really bad, and the way you described it to me sounded horrific. And I thought, like, I desc- yeah, I had a burrito once that was a, a lingua burrito, and the the tongue in it tasted 
the way that people who are afraid to eat tongue think tongue would taste like. Right. And it's yeah. just, and I never, you never know if this is going to be the, you know, and I've, uh, and I've had people talk about like, oh, well, cause I've been to a, I went to a Brazilian restaurant once and they, they give you the opportunity to eat like a heart, like uh-huh. chicken heart. Uh-huh. And, uh, I had friends, I didn't sound good to me, but I was feeling a bit adventurous not too much because I just said, hey, friend I'm with, why don't you eat this and let me know what you think of it? Because if uh-huh. you don't like it, there's no possible way I'll like it. Uh-huh. And so he he took a bite and was like, this is terrible. Like, this is just like <laughs> it's like eating a, a fleshy rock because uh-huh. the muscle, of course, is just the, the heart is just pure muscle, like uh-huh. really hard, tight muscle. And uh, so and huh. so like he, uh, he I've had he I've like had it. tendon before. It's okay. good. All right. I liked it. Yeah. I mean, it's. uh so, but, yeah, uh, I, so yeah, I guess you and I, in many ways, could not be more opposite. That's true. Uh, for food, yeah. Although there are certain things that uh, here's a, here's a confession that I'll make. All right. That I've, I don't think I've ever actually said this out loud. I tell everyone that I don't like cottage cheese. Okay. I've never had a cottage cheese in my life. Really? I just don't like the way it looks. It looks horrifying, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, it. I don't like the. Uh, you know what? I I have I've had cottage cheese. The taste is all right, but. I am one of those people that consistency can actually ruin something for me. Sure, yeah. Um, and the consistency of cottage cheese, it feels like it looks. Okay, it yeah. Looks that, like cottage cheese. I don't think I'll ever have it then. Yeah. So yeah, that's a that's a weight off. I I always tell people, oh, I don't like cottage cheese, but yeah, I never had it. Well, when you say um, you don't like it, that could mean any number of things. You're not necessarily lying. You can just say I don't like. The <laughs> I don't way like it the looks. looks of it. Yeah. There's <laughs> a lot. Of- I do not like the cut of its jib either. <laughs> um, uh. But yeah. I, I also don't like pickles, uh, yeah. except for occasionally on a tuna sandwich. I have weird rules. Yeah. Uh, and I don't really like olives uh, at yeah. all. And that's more of a consistency thing, too, because yeah. I, I, mean, they, I should like them. They're yeah. salty, and they're, they're everything I like, but I just don't like that. They just feel like hardened grapes a little bit. Mm. It's kind of weird. Um, so, okay. So here's the deal. Yes. I'm a very picky eater. My brother is one, too, although not he's not as picky uh, as I am, and it might ch- honestly, it's as strange as it sounds. The day when I, you know, when I become a father, it might change because as a father, you have to show the kid, you have to try to encourage them to branch out, and so uh-huh. I think that actually caused him to like try more things or try, you know, just yeah. eat more things. Yeah. Um. So it might change when that when that happens, but uh, but yeah, as of right like, now, I lived with you for four years. Yeah. You ate peanut butter toast. Yeah. But toast with peanut butter on it. Yeah. Not some sort of weird, like, yeah. processed peanut butter toast. Yeah. That would I stopped be awful. calling it peanut butter toast from people. Like, I thought it was clear to everybody, and they thought, what is that? <laughs> oh, it's just toast with peanut butter on it. Yeah. So, toast with peanut butter on it, pepperoni pizza, and chicken fingers. Yeah. And a, uh, uh, it, about a liter of soda a day. Okay. <laughs> At that time. I know you've cut back on the soda now. Significantly so, yes. Uh, but that was pretty much what I saw you eat for four years. Yes. During college. Everybody, <laughs> I have since graduated to water. I can drink water now. I drink a lot of water, actually. I'm down yeah. to like one or two sodas a day. I know that soda's bad for you all the time, but... Uh, well, you know what I've done? What's that? I've switched to Coke Zero. It's my new jam, and it's great. <laughs> oh, I just want to kill you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, those who follow David on Twitter know all about his his jams. <laughs> um, and I don't mean uh, flowery shorts. <laughs> so... Uh, so, yeah, uh, so basically, here's here's how you can figure out what I like. Is it something? I probably don't like it then. Um, <laughs> because, 
I don't care for Mexican food. I don't like most Italian food. I but hate most of what seafood. It, I think, okay, well, that I don't know. But but it seems like what I've been able to deduce, because I've been studying this for years, because it drives me insane. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, it, in fact, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of great qualities that you have that Jenny sees in you, but for this food thing, she's a saint for putting up with it. Because it would be a deal breaker for me if I were... Yeah, well, I do the cooking in the house, so... <laughs> um, uh, but it seems to me that it's not just – certainly there are some flavors you don't like, yeah. but you don't like anything that has too many flavors going on at the same time. That's true. I like to focus on one or two things at a time. <laughs> and I, that's I, great. I, that's why you will never like a burrito, even if it was a burrito full of stuff you liked. That's true. It's just too much stuff at once. That's true. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I, do, I do still only like pepperoni pizza, and for the record – I don't like cheese pizza. <laughs> you know, the the theory is because I will when I have a pepperoni pizza, I will eat the pepperonis off first, and then I will eat the piece itself. And people are like, "Why don't you just have cheese?" Did you not just see me eat the pepperoni? All right, I'm not insane. All right, and when you send a pizza through a 500 degree oven, the juices from the pepperoni will get on the pizza and will change the flavoring of it. All right, come on now. So anyway, you're right. Yeah, I am. Because I can't, I don't like to just pick olives off a of Supreme Pizza. I'd rather not have olives. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You know, and so. I get I, that, but. I worked at a Little Caesars for a while, and so I tried various types of pizza, various combinations, and I didn't really like Little them. Caesars I, doesn't have a whole lot of options, though, does it? They had 13 when I worked there. Oh, okay. But now it's pretty much like. There's all. Cheese and sausage and pepperoni is like all they have, it seems You like. can still call ahead and get like a pizza, but come on. Nobody does that. It still seems to be an option. Like when I when whenever I go in and pick one up, I look at the board and says, "You can do this." I'm like, "Really? You're still? I guess you kind of have to legally, maybe." But uh, <laughs> come on, this this isn't how you're making your money. Everyone's just here for the five dollar pizza, right? Already, yeah. Um, but yeah, and so I, which uh, in my opinion are terrible. I don't like those pizzas. I, yeah, I, uh, I like them if I have you know it's like oh five bucks and it's I don't have to wait or anything like that. I just go in. And then you know what to expect, and that's the end of it. Yeah, but I don't. Uh, I don't like Pizza Hut anymore. No, I never really like Domino's. No. Um, as far as chains go, I, I still like Papa John's. It's all right. Bit. And uh, I just had a round table for the first time because I know right. you're a fan. And I, yeah, a round table wasn't bad. I still prefer Papa John's. Okay. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually not much of a pizza guy. Yeah, I'm a big fan of pizza. I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of hot dogs, burritos, and euros. I do like hot dogs, although since moving out of Chicago, there are not a lot of good, a lot of there are not a lot of good hot dogs. We, we went to here. Scooby's on Hollywood Boulevard. We did. That was all right. That place is good. If they use Vienna beef, we're we're in good shape. <laughs> but uh, that's the best Vienna beef. It's the best. Um, but uh, yeah, so David has. This is what this because we did two episodes in a row. We had nothing to talk about at the top of the show, so we decided to talk about my. Uh, Dietary because I literally, I legitimately have the question: What are you going to eat in Colombia? And people, because uh, that is a legitimate concern for you know, Jen was wondering. I I was really wondering. Uh, and then you look it up and you discover that uh, first off, they have a lot of the same like chain restaurants and stuff uh. that uh, that we have here. But you're going to make your wife travel to a new country and then eat at Johnny Rockets or whatever the no, fuck? No, I will not. <laughs> this is what makes me different than a child, which is a sentence that I don't like saying, by the way. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> the uh, here's, here's the deal. 
I understand that my preferences are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I can't change them. I've tried to. I don't like seafood, but like for our wedding, like the restaurant where we had the reception had these little like crab cakes and stuff. I'm like, hey, crab cakes. I'll give this a try. Oh, no, thank you. It's not good. Uh But if everyone else wants them, by all means, go ahead. I just won't partake. If a group of people are all going to go out to like a Chinese restaurant and I'm the only one that doesn't want to go because I don't like Chinese uh, Chinese food, then I'll still go. I'll just like, you know. Have a water or a Pepsi, and then I will eat either before or after. I won't make a big stink about it. Uh I won't make people feel bad for that because I'm in the minority here by Uh far, you know, by uh, a substantial margin. And so (laughs) I'm not going to make them feel bad. I'm not going to require people uh, conform to me. You know, if, if people ask, well, do you, you know, it's like, Tyler, I know you're picky. Do you have a preference? Then I will say, yes, I would prefer this. However, Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want, if if more, if the you know most people want to go to do this, we'll do this. I'll just eat later. It's not a big deal at all. So that's you know that said, uh, I feel like that's a better way to be. When I was younger, I would still I would like resent people for like not caring. It's like no, it's one versus like six. All right, and these six people all don't ha- they don't care. Mm-hmm. And so, but now I just realize you know I don't you know if Jen. Uh, like Jen does not care for round table pizza. So there will be times when we just don't feel, you know, we don't feel like cooking. And so she'll have Chinese food delivered and I'll get a pizza. Yeah. You know what I mean? I and remember one time you came out to visit. Yeah. Before you lived here. I think you guys were looking at places or something. Yeah. And uh, we were all going to order Thai food. Yeah. And you didn't want any. And yeah, you just didn't eat. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. It is good for me and good <laughs> for all. All right. It'd be stupid and admittedly childish for me to expect other people to always do what I want to do. Right. And like if a bunch if if a bunch of friends are ordering a pizza and I and I'm hungry, then I'll say just make sure a section of it, it just has pepperoni. Okay. I'm not requiring the whole pizza. Well, speaking of doing what you want to do, you know what I want to do. What would you like to do? Start the episode. All right then. Let's get into it, shall we? All right. This is a, another listener subject, suggested topic, yeah. which we're going to do plenty of because you guys suggest good topics. And it yeah, takes I'm sorry the, we have ignored them for so long. We don't have to do any work. There's a lot of good suggestions out there. Yeah, uh, I don't remember who suggested this topic. Do you? Uh, no, I don't. Okay, we should probably maybe write that down in the yeah. future. Um, uh, but we're going to talk about Shakespeare in the movies. To be or not to be, David. Uh, That's this, my question. This episode, for you. this episode is to be about Shakespeare in the movies. Nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm not really sure <laughs> where to start. Yeah. Um, just that uh, th- there's there's a lot of them, obviously. Right. Um, and not all of them are called what the play was called. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it's funny. One thing I realized in putting together this list is that there are certain plays that I've never actually read or seen actual productions or movies of. Right. I've just seen the the ones that are inspired by them. Okay. You such know? as? Um Taming the Shrew. Uh, I've seen yeah. Kiss Me Kate, which is dumb. I've seen Ten Things I Hate About You, which is not as dumb, but still kind of dumb. Okay. Um, uh, but I've never, I, I've never read the Taming the Shrew or, or seen a production of it. Right. Um, Although the it has been directly adapted itself. Sure. Yeah. There I've was just a film with uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Okay. I've never seen it. Yeah. Neither have I. Oh. But um, I was hoping this would be the opposite of last week, where you've seen a bunch of Shakespeare movies that I haven't seen. I've seen some. Uh, you've probably seen more than I have. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Um, uh, but th- yeah, that 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 was that was funny of me, f- or fun for me to realize. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, once again, I don't know where to start. I guess I should just start. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start us off if you like. Okay, good. Just with the general oh, good. concept You've got of it. Oh. Uh, so you and I have a, we majored in film, but before that we have a theatrical background. Yeah, um, in, in high school. In high school. Now, I did no Shakespeare in high school. I was the narrator or whatever you call it for um, Romeo and Juliet my senior year. Um, but I wasn't in that because I was in a different play that was being rehearsed at the same time. But they brought me in, and I I just did the narration. Um, And honestly, when I was younger, I didn't care for Shakespeare. And as an actor, I was afraid of Shakespeare because I I consider myself to be a pretty good actor. It's certainly not, not what I'm pursuing, but... Shakespeare was very daunting to me because I found that I was better with a fairly modern cadence. Uh And Shakespeare, it's just, you know, and I hated uh, in English class where you got to go through like a whole, you know, soliloquy and like say what he's actually trying, you know, what he's actually trying to say. Just the, the, you know, the lyricism of his, of his uh, words were really beautiful, but I didn't often understand them. And it just really bothered me mm-hmm. and to the point that I like hated Shakespeare. It's like, well, it's not Shakespeare's fault, Tyler. And <laughs> um but what's what struck me and of course there's but there's plenty of movies made from Shakespeare's plays and a good portion of them I mean you mentioned the ones that were inspired by his stories, but a good portion of them will use the original text mm-hmm. um they, they'll probably edit it down significantly but they will use the original text and something that i've that i've realized and um <clears throat> and a friend of mine who loves shakespeare uh and and loves film uh helped me to realize that there are certain films especially these days that will adapt shakespeare they'll use the original text but somehow they seem afraid of it they seem uh to try to distance themselves from it like what like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Romeo plus Juliet. Right. That's the one. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I'd say right there is a good example. Um, I think I stole that joke from someone. Now that uh, I say it out loud, I think I've heard someone say that before. Well, I have to assume a lot of people have said that joke because that's what the title is, okay. strictly speaking. Um, but that's one where you can actually see them trying to... First off, they said it in, of course, a modern time. But then also... The actors don't seem to be; they seem to be afraid of the of the language, and they try and turn it into they try and give it a modern cadence to try to like a, I guess appeal to a younger audience, and and it found a younger audience. I mean, it uh, I came out came out in theaters when I guess we would be freshmen in high school, and a lot of people I knew went to see it, and uh, you, of course I was in freshman English, and of course you would get uh, extra credit if you went to see it um, <laughs> and write a report on it or something like that. Um, but, uh, but if you, if you watch it now, you will actually see that there are certain actors like a Pete, I never know how to say his last name, Postlethwaite. Yeah, I think so. He really relishes the opportunity. He plays Friar Lawrence. Uh, he really relishes the, the opportunity. The, the apothecary. What was that? He's the apothecary. Oh, who's, who's Friar Lawrence? I thought he was. No, I think they're, they're two different people. Okay, he deals with an apothe- apothecary, <laughs> but uh, but no, I think he's a separate. I think they're separate people. Okay, well, I haven't seen it in a while. Okay, fair enough. 
um, or Reddit. It would sound better if you said. I no, I mean, I, I'm saying I can't remember which one Pete Postlethwaite played. Yeah, shoot, That's I don't I'm either trying. now. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm almost positive he played. Here, get your, you you get named your Blackberry. Him, you, I'll get my Blackberry and look at who's the apothecary. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Because I haven't you, seen it in You 10 named years. Pete Postlethwaite, and you, I realize now you said Friar Lawrence, but I immediately thought of him as the apothecary. Okay. Well, shoot. Now I don't recall. Sorry, everybody. It's been a while since I've seen it as well. But either way, one thing that I do remember is the way that the, his performance was very different because he seemed to relish the opportunity to say these words. Whereas Leonardo DiCaprio, who's an actor that I think is good, but he was still fairly young, and he seemed to kind of distance himself. He seemed to approach them in a cautious way, and I would say the same very much goes for Claire Danes. But um, and I feel like you you'll find that a lot with modern film adaptations of Shakespeare is they seem to it, it's kind of like they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to. They want the power and prestige of a Shakespearean play, mm-hmm. but they don't want the costumes. They don't want to... And the, I feel like they'll say... I, for a lot of me, I don't recall who directed the Ethan Hawke version of uh, Hamlet. Neither do I. I never but, saw it. But it's, I'm not a big fan of it. But the... Uh, you know, they'll say it's like, oh, well, it's, to, it's, it's so that there's a timeless factor. It's to show people that these stories can take place at any time. It's like... Is it, or is it because you don't want to put people in period costumes? Um, it could be both, admittedly, but it just... When they when they have Ethan Hawke walking through a blockbuster, talking about to be or not to be, um, and the way in which he is saying it, uh, it's like he's trying to work against the inherent lyricism of the words, then it just seems like they're trying to do a Hamlet adaptation without actually doing one. Um, and... It just, I don't know, it's kind of, it, I guess it frustrates me a little bit, um, even as somebody who didn't grow up loving Shakespeare, mm-hmm. um, because since then I've, I've, re- I've come to recognize just how amazing he was as a writer, both of the characters he created, the way he wrote, and the stories that he told. And, and it's just... So, most of them. The stories, story isn't always his strong point. Okay. Are, he has some great stories. All right. But, I mean, I don't know. You know... Some of the comedies are a little, uh, I guess, light. I guess they should be. They're comedies. But yeah. Well, they can't all be a Merchant of Venice, you know, which, which was I, hysterical. Which I, and I don't like that one. <laughs> By the way, you were right. Pete Possibly played Friar Lawrence. M. M. Emmett Walsh was the apothecary. Ah, <laughs> how did I forget M. Emmett Walsh? How can I forget him in anything that I do? But um, so, uh, And so I kind of wanted yeah, to start are. with that. <laughs> But, of course, it hasn't always been that. If you go back, you know, uh, Hollywood's been... Uh, uh, not just Hollywood, So would you prefer that they just change the language completely, like with <sighs> 10 Things I Hate About You? Yeah. If they're going to do it, then do it. You know? But if they wanted, if they actually want to use these words, then they need to actually get actors who aren't afraid of the words. I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to say I disagree. Okay. I think um, for... Uh, Romeo plus Juliet. It's uh, I'm gonna keep on stealing it. Whoever <laughs> yeah. that was that I'm stealing it from. That's fine because it's fun to say. Um, if you don't know who you're stealing it from, who you're stealing it from, then you can say it's organic. It's original. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, <clears throat> what was I gonna say? Okay, with that movie, um, they it, it because it takes place in a in a, in in contemporary in a contemporary era. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it makes sense for the cadence of the world for things to be updated a little bit. Yeah. But they still want to do uh, justice to the poetry of the language. Right. So they're using the words. I, I think it's a it's a compromise. Yeah. Um. And I uh, I guess you are also saying it's a compromise, but I'm saying it's an acceptable one, and you're saying not. Right. I mean, if they want to do justice to it, but then but they I need... just I guess I don't like your assertion that in order to do in in order to do it in the original words, you have to also do it in the original time period. No, I don't. I don't think that. I'm sorry. That's, I think if, if you were to do it in the original time period, then, then there really is no, uh, almost aesthetic roadblock to, to doing it in the original language. But I've seen, you know, I mean, I, as you know, I'm a big fan of Orson Welles. And of course there was no way for me to see his stage version of Julius Caesar, but that took place in modern time. I actually saw a f- couple years ago here in Los Angeles. I saw. Did you see me and Orson Welles? No, I haven't yet. Because that isn't that what the, what what it's about. I believe so. Yeah, isn't that the production? Okay. And uh, a few years ago, I saw a production of Romeo and Juliet, um, directed by the guy who played Frank Fontana from Murphy Brown, uh-huh. and uh, and it it was Romeo and Juliet done in, in modern dress, and uh, but he wanted. He felt that, okay, well, it's modern dress and the situations, it was basically, it's, instead of like Montagues and Capulets, still kept all the names, but it basically like one group is, uh, they're both political families and mm-hmm. one is Republican, one's Democrat. Okay, fair enough. That's fine. But, um, so we all recognize the, the, the mo- modernism of his choices, but he still kept a classical reading of the lines as well, because to try and modernized lines that are not modern um in in the interpretation of them is to i think devalue them and so so i feel like you don't necessarily have to always have it be in that time period but if you try and undercut them by by giving them a non-lyrical uh delivery then it's like well then why are you even doing this why not just adapt it you know why not just get the cliff's notes of this where it gives what each line means basically in mo- in layman's terms. Why don't you just go by that, and then you can avoid this whole thing completely. But that might be like a weird form of, you know, purism on my part. <laughs> but uh, I don't it's know. It's funny you feel that way now, and yet you didn't like it at all in high school. Yeah. Whereas I loved Shakespeare in high school. Yeah, and now you hate uh, it. No, I don't. <laughs> but mostly because, uh, I guess... <laughs> Maybe my mind isn't abstract enough to appreciate most poetry because mm. it like I, I've gotten better, but especially in high school, I did not like poetry most yeah. of it because there was no like story to it. Yeah, you know, and like Shakespeare's poetry, but like I know where I'm going with it. You know, it's, it's poetry like, with a purpose. It's something we can all get behind. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of what I was thinking. With that would be a, a completely wrong-headed thing to say. Uh, and I want to make it clear that I have more appreciation for poetry now. I don't really read a lot of it. Yeah, but. Uh, I I do favorite I, I poet go favorite. I have no idea. Okay, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I I kind of had a feeling that I would be putting you on the spot there. I'm sorry. Um, who well, who did the um uh, never mind. Shel Silverstein. <laughs> yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking of. No, who's the? F- I'm gonna sound like an ignoramus here, but the 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 poet like the. Uh, uh, the the poet the, the the term things fall apart, which is the Chinua Achebe book, and also an album by the Ro- Roots. 
comes from a poem by a certain poet, and that guy's really good. I just can't think of his name. It's like it's one of the big ones, like Yeats or Keats or something like that. It's yeah. like a, it's a big name. Anyway, I don't recall. Sorry. Anyway, so that's how I feel about poetry. <laughs> I appreciate it, but I don't remember their names. One of the big ones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I liked Amiri Baraka when I first heard of him in college and then found out he's kind of a lunatic conspiracy theorist who thinks that the Jews are responsible for 9-11. <laughs> Was that in his poetry? I think he has actually written poems <laughs> about it. <laughs> um, so now, David, uh, I guess we've kind of I, I been talking about adapting Shakespeare in kind of a, mostly a, an academic and theoretical sense so far. Yeah. Um, what are some of your favorite movies well, let's go, based let's on Let's go play by play here. Okay. Let's start with Othello. Okay. You and I have, okay. on multiple occasions, talked about Orson Welles' Othello yes. on this show, which, because we are both great fans of it. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I don't even know what else to say that we haven't said before. It's it's You're, you're the Welles uh, aficionado. Uh, well, I guess between the two of us. Yeah. Um, of all the people in this room, and Jen's <laughs> not here, it should be noted. Um, uh, yeah, it's... I'm. His adaptation of, of Othello is really amazing because it's just, first off, him doing any kind of Shakespeare is, is fascinating to me because he really had respect for Shakespeare's language. That said, he cut down Shakespeare's plays uh, like a, uh, an evil corporation yeah. through the forests of Pandora. What's Othello, like 100 minutes or something? Is it? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly short. He just tore through these things uh-huh. um, because, I, you know, to his credit, he recognized that, like, look, I'm trying to make a movie here, and I'm sorry, I got to keep things moving. And yeah. uh, and so, <clears throat> but he also, he did not shy away from the really, like, uh, morose and just the intense uh, aspect of, of Shakespeare. In fact, he saw it as like licensed to like, oh, finally, t- it's time for some art direction and some <laughs> and some crazy lighting. Yeah. Um, and and he did. He is a guy who, uh, I mean, his Othello takes place at the time Othello took place, right? Yes. Um, and it, yeah, other than chopping it down, it keeps the original. Yeah. Uh, the language isn't changed; just cut down. Yeah. Uh, but he does use a lot of really of techniques that were really modern at the time. Yeah, <clears throat> we've talked. I think every time we talked about Othello in the show, we talk about the bathhouse yeah. sequence, which is the greatest sequence in the film and one of the greatest sequences in film history. Say that's about in right. my opinion, uh, and that's like it's a very like frenetic and yeah. you know handheld and, yeah. and uh, that film might be, I think, one of the best handlings of Shakespeare in general because it doesn't necessarily feel stagey. Like as you say, like he really is good at bringing something that was on the stage and making it feel as if it was always meant for screen. Um, and just, uh, and it's gorgeous to look at, but also he wisely, he casts his friends from the stage, um, who have experience with Shakespeare. And, and of course he himself was a, uh, stage trained actor who, Mm -hmm. who loved Shakespeare. And so, um, and he plays Othello, which is interesting because he himself, uh, never really liked the part. He, he finds the character just fine, but it's odd that he didn't give him give himself the part of uh, Iago. Mm-hmm. Um, but he let he gave and who plays that, Iago? Uh, I think the guy's name is Michael Macleamore. Okay, uh, I might be getting the pronunciation incorrect okay. on that, but uh, but he's an old an old friend of of Wells, and he and to Wells' credit, he knew that this guy was going to eat this role up. 
and he does, and it's really wonderful. Um, and and I'm a big fan of it. Yeah, and it I is think weird. It's really I mean, great. I mean, Wells is great in the movie, but I do think when I think of that movie, I think more about Iago. Yeah, which I think is probably just a function of the play in general. I always right. think of Othello as more of Iago's story than anybody else's. Um, but I never saw O, and then I never the, saw the. Kenneth I never Brano. saw the. Wait, did Kenneth Brown, the one with Lawrence Fishburne? Yeah. Did Kenneth Brown do that? Uh, I don't. I don't know, but he plays Iago. See, again, oh, but he didn't I, like, I instantly it. thought of him. As okay. opposed to Lawrence Fishburne. Um, well, then, yeah, I, I did see O. Yeah. Uh, and it's not bad. It's, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's kind of... It does have the the weirdness of taking place in modern times. You in know, high school. In a high school, yeah. But just Shakespearean things happening in a more relatable reality, which makes it seem... Mel- it, it comes across as melodramatic. Right, right. Which, I mean, Shakespeare wrote melodrama, yeah. you know? Uh, which is, yeah, that's... Uh, one of my goals in life is to take away the sort of uh, knee-jerk derogatory reaction to the word melodrama. Yeah. Because it, it, melodrama can be really good. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's the only problem with O is that it's – and it's a problem with a lot of the sort of modern tellings of Shakespeare's thing. It's like this is something that would happen in a Shakespeare play, but it doesn't really fit. Yeah. So um, – and then, of course, Josh Hartnett is playing Iago. That's yeah. not his name in the movie, but – character's name is Hugo, I believe. No. See, you remember, you know, better than I do, and I you, and you it, didn't yeah. see it. Um, but yeah, so that's that's Othello. Um, now you want to talk about? Uh, now I can't remember what you were talking about, but something you said in front of me of, uh, damn it! Oh, you were talking about the the sort of more morose elements. Yeah. Um. Well, not only was he morose for all his flowery language, William Shakespeare wrote some bloody motherfucking plays. Yes. And uh, Julie Taymor directed Titus, <laughs> and uh, which is you know based on Titus Andronicus. And here I was hoping that we would end with Titus because that's the note I wanted to end on. <laughs> it is the last one I put on my list, but and I was gonna wait, but just that's uh, it, it, it just sort of flowed naturally. Yeah. Although I kind of st- stammered bringing <laughs> bringing it up. So, uh, uh, but for people who haven't seen Titus, I would recommend seeing it. Yeah. I don't know that you're gonna like it. Yeah. It's fine with me if you don't like it. Yeah. I personally love it. I do too, and it's it's almost three hours long, which means not as much as there's. I mean, um, pretty much every Shakespearean adaptation has stuff cut out of it because yeah. his plays would run four to five hours if they were done in their entirety. Yeah, often. Um, uh, but Titus is uh, is just a little shy of three hours, mm-hmm. um, so you get most of it, and you get all the all the great bloody parts like. You know, a woman getting her hands chopped off and her tongue ripped out. Yeah. And, uh, and the hands are replaced with sticks. Yeah, they shove sticks into her stumps. Ugh. That's. <laughs> and then uh, characters getting their throats slit and uh, they get baked into a pie. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And then at one point someone gets like a, a soup ladle shoved down their throat, which yeah. I'm not sure that actually happened in. <laughs> yeah, that might have been some uh, fancy uh, <laughs> yeah. interpretation. Um, but. Uh, that's what? and that's a movie that you talked about the timelessness thing. Yeah. Uh, how do yeah? Essentially, how does she approach that. Julie Taymor has said that her version of Titus takes place from the year zero to the year two thousand. Yeah. It takes or ninety nine. I think is when it came yeah. out. Um, it takes place in for the it, within the entirety of that millennium or yeah. th- those two millenniums. Just the entirety of A D is when mm-hmm. it takes place. Uh, so yeah, it's some. Some things seem to be ancient Rome, yeah. but then there are also motorcycles and arcade games in yeah. the movie, and there's there seems to be 
they're like uh, I'm trying to think. Are there guns? I don't remember there being guns. Well, I, aren't there tanks though? I seem to recall there right. being tanks. Yeah, but so they're also like there bows. There are also bows and arrows. Yeah, which I guess there are now. But uh, it's um, it, it's it, I, it's that kind of thing that could lead plenty of people to not like it. it yeah. it's uh, it's just very arch, I guess. And it also um, has an odd framing device where. Yeah. It's like a kid playing with toys in his room. Yeah. And this is the story that comes out of it, which is which as possibly negative as that might sound, uh-huh. that might reflect poorly on Shakespeare himself. With that story I'd say it's about right. Like all the weird violent things are the kind of thing that a little kid would come up with when playing with his action figures. Uh-huh. And like all the crazy melodrama is the kind of thing that a kid would probably come up with. Yeah. Um, and that sounds mean to Shakespeare. I don't mean for it to, but, uh, but it's, it's such an odd f- way to frame that film. Yeah. I wonder what she thinks of Shakespeare. <laughs> I'd like to know. She's, I mean, she's done, <clears throat> I mean, that's the only Shakespeare film she's made. Yeah. Uh, but she's done plenty of Shakespeare on the stage. Yeah. She also did, which I've heard there's a video of out there. Um, uh, the opera version of uh, Oedipus Rex, huh. which she did in Tokyo, I think, and I want to see it so bad. I've heard it's great. Hmm. Um, but that's that's pretty much the only Titus uh, <laughs> yeah. Andronicus that I've seen. I've never seen on the stage. I've read the play. It's one of the few Shakespeare plays that I've actually read. Okay, I've essentially read Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, and Titus Andronicus. I think yeah. that's those are the only ones I've actually sat down and read. Let's see. Um, but uh, <clears throat> speaking of Romeo and Juliet, I guess let's get into that because there's yeah. a bunch of them. There's, of course, the Basilum and Romeo plus Juliet. Yes. Which we've already discussed. Yeah. There's the Franco Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet, which I yeah. love. Have you seen it? Yes. Uh, I've seen it a bunch of times, actually. It's um, it's the opposite of Basilum and Romeo and Juliet. It takes place uh, more or less in that era. Or oh, yeah. Yeah. More or less. I guess maybe maybe a little after, technically. Just, I don't know. Based on the few things I know about the way that fashion has <laughs> fashion progressed, I'm looking at the clothes they wear they were wearing. It's probably a little bit after. Oh, okay. Actually, but uh, I could be completely wrong about that. Yeah. All right. I'm not that much. I'm not a student of the history of uh, fashion. Okay. We could probably keep moving along here. Okay. Um, so, but uh, my favorite thing about the Zeffirelli one, and this is a lot of people bring this up, but it's worth bringing up, is that the the actors are pretty much about 15 and 16 years old. Yeah. Which is. Which I think adds a lot to the story. Yeah. Uh, because that's... Um, uh, maybe I'm a cynic. You are. Okay. I've never seen <laughs> Romeo and Juliet as this great love story. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, I don't know if we've ever discussed it's, this. Go ahead, David. It's essentially... It's a tragedy, of course. I mean, yeah. Uh, about how dumb and impulsive t- teenagers can be. <laughs> that's essentially what Romeo and Juliet is about. Yeah. You know? There's no way... You just... Okay. At the beginning of the play, Romeo is torturing himself over some woman that we never see, some other girl that we never see. Yeah. You know? And then almost immediately afterwards, he falls madly in love with someone else. Yeah. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a play about hormones. <laughs> you know? Well, now uh, I would say, uh, if I'm being I Romeo and Juliet has never been one of my favorite plays of his. Um, my favorite is probably Macbeth, but... Uh, but I'll, I'll try and do, I'll play devil's advocate here, David. Okay. Um, by which I, you know, I guess probably in this instance you're playing devil's advocate, except you actually believe what you're saying. So yeah, I'll play devil's advocate. Okay. Because um, I'm not sure if I believe this. Um, one could go so far as say that it is a play 
about lo- love in general and just the both like the positive and negative impulses that go behind love but it's and mostly maybe, negative i mean as so you say and i think i think a lot of people uh and i think it is important to show these characters as being younger actually being that age because i think a lot of older people look at those characters and they see like oh i remember when i felt that way about love when it was oh i would kill myself over this and blah you know, and you're saying they're looking back on it fondly? Maybe that's just me. Is that I look back and I'm like, oh, I'm glad I'm not that big an idiot anymore. Uh, yeah, I think they probably look back on it fondly. That kind of passion. Not to imply that you know people don't have passion in their marriages or anything like that. But just, you know, they look back and just... And they think of it where, you know, they think like, oh, was I, it's like, ah, I remember being that young and stupid. Like, even if they can view it negatively, but still wistfully, you know. And so I think maybe... That's why it's viewed as this great love story because it is like the essence of love before it gets like, you know, tainted by all by adulthood, quite frankly, mm-hmm. and like having to pay bills and, right. you know, people getting like older and unattractive and such and that sort of thing. So perhaps it is in that context that it's viewed as a great love story, though I would I don't think many people would probably go into that kind of detail about it. Okay, well, um, so we talked about Baz Luhrmann. There's also West Side Story, right. which I love, yeah. and which is more believable because those people are irrationally passionate. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about Jets, right? <laughs> yeah. No, that uh, I don't like that. I, 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 I like when other people make those kind of jokes. I feel I feel weird that I just made that. <laughs> I'm, I'm backing down. I yeah. do not have the confidence in my... To be fake racist? To be fake racist. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I, I feel bad having said it. Um... But I, yeah, I love West Side Story. But uh, what more can you say about it in terms of Shakespeare that we haven't already said? I mean, I yeah. can say plenty about the awesome cinematography and choreography. Yeah. Uh, but that's not the episode we're doing. Now, if you if you had your druthers, David, uh-huh. which one do you like? What do you like more, the play of Shakes uh, of uh, Romeo and Juliet or West Side Story? Uh, well, we're talking about we're a film podcast. We're not talking about. Right, it just, so I guess like which version? Yeah. I I think I think I probably like Zeffirelli's version better. Okay, but West Side Story is right, okay, right at, at its heels. Do you think West Side Story brings anything to the the basic telling of Romeo and Juliet that wasn't there before that like helps you to understand the? Characters? I don't know that it brings anything, but by taking away the language, yeah, but adding songs, right, it finds another path to essentially the same, yeah, the same sort of lyricism. In right, the, in this case, literally lyricism. Yeah. Um. And then, of course, there's Romeo Must Die. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, now. There's also Romeo is Bleeding. Oh, which I actually haven't seen. Gary Old- it has nothing to do with that. Oh, okay. They just quoted a song from... Uh, but as I recall, Tom Romeo Must Die is loosely... It's like, he's the Asian guy, and then she's the black girl, and apparently Asians and black people don't like each other if the things that I have seen in movies like Friday are <laughs> And Crash. True. Oh, and Crash. Okay. And then, of course, there's... On uh, on Lost, when Michael says that Koreans don't like black people. Yes, there's that as well, yeah. Um, <coughs> um, yeah, I guess we could talk about Romeo Must Die. I mean, I guess that does bring no, up... I've seen it once. I didn't like it. I don't know. Yeah, it's did, terrible. Did you ever see it? Uh, yeah, I saw it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, incidentally, no, I have not seen Harold and Maude. I did see Romeo Must Die. <laughs> but, um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but that does bring up an element, is that Shakespeare is so... I'd say probably the Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. 
uh-huh. are two stories that everyone, even if they've never read them, I think everybody knows about them. Yeah. At least vaguely. They know the basic stories of them. I don't think people know the story of Hamlet. You don't think so? No, I think they know to be or not to be. I suppose. But I think if a person is not interested in the story or hasn't seen it, they don't actually know. So if I went up to like a random person and said, what's the absolute most basic story of Hamlet? They wouldn't know? No, I don't think so. I think they just know. Do you think they would know Romeo and Juliet? Yeah. Everybody knows Romeo and Juliet. All right. Now, if you you said what happens in The Lion King. Right, right. Then they. And and I guess that kind of leads into, you know, or it's an extension of what I was about to say is that there's such a, I don't know, there's such a general awareness of, of Shakespeare in general. Everyone knows at least who Shakespeare is and could probably name some of his plays, even if they don't necessarily know what they're about. Um, and so, uh, excuse me, I keep having, uh, keep having to cough. Uh, and so I feel like you get, you will sometimes get a movie like Romeo must die, where they're just, it almost feels like they're co-opting Shakespeare Uh where they're just like, look, everyone knows this, right? So let's just use it, you know? (laughs) And then we can, you know, and then we can make it seem like we're being more artistic than we are. I doubt that act, that actual conversation was said, but I, I feel like there's a there's a great deal of potential to get bad movies out of Shakespeare. You know, sure, I mean, you yeah. mentioned some already because they just feel like, oh, well, there's a built-in audience at the very least. Freshman English classes have to see these things. So should we talk about Hamlet then? Sure. Um, yeah, there's The Lion King, which yep. is great. I mean, it's a very uh, abridged and loosely adapted version, but it's the same yeah. general story. You know, yeah. the uncle is the villain. The, the father dies, right? That's yeah. pretty much the story. Yeah, yeah. Timon and Pumbaa are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. <laughs> I don't think they really are if you follow the story, right? Right. But uh, there's two there's two characters there that yeah. are kind of like that. Um, uh, then there's speaking of Kenneth Branagh, who he's done a lot of them. Uh, did you ever see his Hamlet? No, I uh, I think if I had started it, I'd still be watching it. Uh, <laughs> that thing is like what eighty five hours long. <laughs> it's it's about four hours. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I I, I like it. I like I like most of his adaptions. I haven't seen Love's Labor's Lost. No. Uh or did he do uh did he do As You Like It as well? Uh I you know, I think so, but uh I don't know. I've seen his Henry the Fifth and yeah. I've seen Much Ado about nothing. And but uh anyway, I yeah, I like I like his um a lot. And then uh I've never seen the Laurence Olivier one. You know what? Nor have I, actually. <laughs> uh, I know that sounds terrible, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, uh, this is going to sound, I don't know, I might get some e- emails for this, but what I've seen of Laurence Olivier, especially him doing Shakespeare, and I've seen, I've seen, like, clips and stuff, and then mm-hmm. what did I, um... Henry V. No. Shoot, hang on. Richard III. Um, I had, uh, c- okay, calm down, David, I got it. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if I like the way he does Shakespeare. Yeah. Because I think he overemphasizes, you know, like in discussing Romeo plus Juliet, I feel like they mm-hmm. underemphasize the language. I think he overemphasizes it to the point that it's just like, well, now I think you're losing the concept that these are characters saying things. Because now I feel like you're just doing a monologue, like disembodied from the story, like you're auditioning or something. Um, and maybe maybe it's different with some of the other uh, films, but in Richard the Third, which is a I, I've I've always liked that play. It's, it is one of the few plays that I've read. 
I like that story. I like that play, and I love that character. Um, I didn't like the way he played it because everything was so big that I thought, do you even understand that this is a carrot? This like a real character, not not real in the sense that you know, uh, like everything is based on fact and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. just this is a guy who has like different feelings and thoughts, and sometimes he's evil, and sometimes he's not necessarily noble, but. You're playing him as if he were giving a political speech all the time. And I don't know, that's just that might just be my view of it. Uh I don't know. I'm I feel you think like he's, I might get so he's he's overdoing it so it's not realistic, but he's still is it like a Tashira Mufuni thing for you where you understand that this is good by certain standards, but it's I not your definition. I mean, I guess it is good by s- I don't know. I think it's good by the definition of people who probably aren't that familiar with Shakespeare. or Not that I'm remarkably familiar with mm-hmm. it. But at the same time, Laurence Olivier was doing it. Orson Welles, Orson Welles was doing it, too. Mm-hmm. And I've seen his... I haven't seen... He didn't... I don't think he did a Richard III. But I've seen his Macbeth. I've seen his Othello. I've seen his Falstaff. And he... And I'm not. I'm trying. I'm not trying to say this just because I I love Orson Welles. I think that he can make mistakes, and he's a, an actor who could really ham it up. All right, mm-hmm. but I think he understood precisely the power of the language as a be- uh, a beautiful lyrical thing, but also it is dialogue. People are exchange characters are exchanging information. Yeah. And so, and I think. Lawrence Olivier just lo- I think he loved the words so much that he just wanted to hit all of them. The only comparison that I can make is everyone knows how I start the show. I start with "Hello and welcome aboard the battleship." Okay, it's always it's really big. Imagine I did the whole show like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you need like the ebbs and flows and and I I he finds it, you know, he he doesn't deliver everything as crazy over the top, but I think he just Everything is big, and I think a lot of people, perhaps at the time, because he was kind of the only one of the only people doing Shakespeare in any kind of mainstream way. Um, I think a lot of people thought that bigger was better, and but I don't think people. I don't think everybody thought that at the time. I don't think it was a purely cultural thing. Okay. Um, well, speaking of Wells, okay, and uh, the plays you've seen, talk about Macbeth because I have not seen his Macbeth. It's. You know, it's interesting to talk about that at this, in the same way that you talk about uh, Othello because, as I said, Othello takes place on film. Uh-huh. I mean, it is it's the way he does it is not inherently stagey. He really makes it feel like a film. Uh-huh. Macbeth feels like a staged production that happened to have cameras there. And that was kind of what he wanted it to be. Uh-huh. He wanted it to feel like you were watching a play. Um, and... Again, he he took a lot of the script out, but he was also committed to other things. Um, he was committed to Scottish accents, even when they are potentially indecipherable. Um, <laughs> and the studio actually made him and other people go in and do it with just a, a much more understandable British accent. Um, uh-huh. And then uh, as time has gone on, the, the Scottish track has been put back in. And, uh, and it's just, it's such an interesting thing because... I mean, I think of Wells as a filmmaking virtuoso, uh-huh. and there are certain of those types of elements in Macbeth. Wellsian tomfoolery? Uh, yeah. Where's that from? It's, it's like Leonard Moulton or someone's review of Mr. Arcadden. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, Wellsian t- Yeah. Um, 
but this actually doesn't contain a lot of Wellesian tomfoolery. This contains it's it's surprisingly straightforward, um, and it gives you the impression of oh, this is what it would be like to see an Orson Welles stage production. Still interesting, still fascinating, but certainly not on par with his other films uh, as far as it being a film. Um, so it's fun. It, it's it's fun to watch, and there's you know uh, a lot of good performances and stuff. But uh, it is not nearly as recommendable as uh, as his Othello, and certainly not as uh, Chimes at Midnight. Well, uh, the only filmed version of the Scottish play that I know is Scotland, PA, starring Maura Tierney and James the Grow and yeah. James Rebhorn and Andy Dick and uh, Speed Andy Smart and Speed Levitch and Kevin Corrigan. Yeah. Am I missing in, out on anybody big? Uh, oh, Christopher Walken. How could I forget <laughs> that Christopher Walken is in there? Um, um, and uh, it's no secret, I love Scotland, PA, and yeah, so do you. As do I. And I think we've mentioned this before, that it's basically a comedy, but it sh- but the inherent power of the Macbeth story uh-huh. comes through, and you're not laughing by the end. Yeah. Like, characters are dying, and the pressure and the intense paranoia of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth um, oops. Um, they come through, and they're played very well uh-huh. by I think Maura Tierney's the best thing in the film. Um, in more than one way. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, think I cannot let the name yeah. Maura Tierney go be spoken without me commenting on how attractive I think she is. She's very beautiful. She's a very beautiful woman, and uh, but the inherent power of the story overwhelms the fact that this is strictly speaking a comedy. And all these people are fighting over a fast food franchise. Uh-huh. The inherent ridiculousness of that situation goes away. And you're left with just characters that you're, like, really concerned about. And you're really, you know, and people uh-huh. die. And and you're not laughing by the end. And it's really... I don't know if that's actually a, a fault uh, of the filmmaker, perhaps. I don't know if that's a flaw. I don't um, think so. I, I think it's... Uh... This is where he wanted to tell the story, you know? Yeah. And I don't think he was just uh, doing it to say, like, oh, you know, let's make fun of the 1970s a little bit. Or, yeah. you know, wouldn't it be silly if this was in fast food? Yeah. Uh, it Somehow the story clearly made sense to him to set it there, you yeah. know? And he does play up the comedy. Yeah. Uh, which is the, the filmmaker's choice, yeah. you know, and it works. Uh, you know, when the one dude is uh, like, make some fondue, chocolate, none of that cheese shit. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and walking is hysterical. In yeah. It. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, he clearly took. I, I cannot remember the guy's name who made it. He used to be married to Maura Tierney. At the, yeah. He was at the time. Uh, keep talking. Um, uh, but he. Uh, made the story faithfully. You know, he's not. He's not looking down at. Or making fun of Shakespeare or Macbeth at all. Um, he's having some fun with it, but he's still respected. No, when you say he, you mean Billy Morissette, right? Billy Morissette yeah. is the guy that I was thinking of. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really... And I think perhaps one of the differences between this film and O, and again, I haven't seen O, is that um, <clears throat> as strange as it's... Like, O takes place like, oh, this oh, guy's... It's, uh, it's all uh, about... That. What? Uh, Josh Pius... Josh That's Price right. is also yes. in Scotland, PA. Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, and uh, oh, and Tom Tom Geary. I don't know. He plays uh, Malcolm. Oh. Um, 
And he was also in uh, The Sandlot. Okay. As Smalls. Uh, but the... Like, the... I guess the, the, the story of O, in which it's a high school basketball team, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe Odin is the name of uh, Mackay Pfeiffer... Yeah. In uh, in O. Um I believe that's his character's name and he's like the star, but Hugo's father is the coach and he clearly loves Odin more than he loves Hugo. So I guess there are like important emotional elements going on that motivate the terrible things that happen. Um but uh but somehow it just seems really melodramatic and I think Billy Morissette uh effectively cuts through the inherent melodrama of taking these ridiculous tragic elements taking place in modern day at a fast food restaurant, I think he uses the comedy to kind of undercut that mm-hmm. um, while still acknowledging that, like, well, this fast food restaurant's making a lot of money. Somebody could wind up being very rich by the end of this thing. Yeah. And so I think that's I think everything about Scotland, PA is the way to do it. Um, mm-hmm. If you're going to change the language, keep the story, even keep the character names um, and uh, and update it. You got, I feel like you need to find something to undercut the inherent melodrama. And again, there's there's nothing in, really wrong with melodrama except that audiences, I don't think, like it very much. Um, or at least not when it's that kind of thing. Right. Um, and so I think I think he found just the right thing by using comedy to kind of undercut it. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on. Okay. Um, uh, I was going to say speaking of comedy, but I, I don't want to talk about... Uh, you know what? Okay, speaking of comedy, okay. or in this case, comedy, with right. uh, quotation marks around it, let's talk about The Taming of the Shrew okay. and the two versions of it that I've seen, okay. Kiss Me Kate and 10 Things I Hate About You. Okay. Um, have you seen either? No, I haven't. Yeah, good for you. All Especially right. with Kiss Me Kate, which is just annoyingly bad. Uh, the songs are dumb. It's a musical. Wasn't My Fair Lady also... I don't know. I never saw it. Kind of a similar... Uh... I thought My Fair Lady was... Uh, Anyway, I don't know. Okay, I, I thought okay, that was Pygmalion. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm mixing it up with something else, and now I don't remember the name of it. So go ahead. Okay, it might be um, Kiss Me Kate that I'm thinking of. Kiss Me Kate is Taming the Shrew, okay. and the the songs are bad. Uh, it was made in 3D, um, so there's a lot of people like throwing things at the screen, at the camera, <laughs> and stuff like that. And it's uh, it's just painful to watch. And it's also uh, ten things I hate about you. As much as I think it's kind of just a mediocre film yeah it at least turned some of the sexual politics on its head on their head you know by because because taming of the shrew is so unfeministic a story you know and that's why that's why kiss me kate is always kind of weird it just feels kind of uncomfortable to me uh because it's a little bit misogynist um but 10 things i hate about you makes the julia styles character a you know uh a, a devoted and intelligent feminist, you yeah. know, and that becomes part of the of the plot. And it actually, to the movie's credit, it doesn't like uh, uh, it. It never glosses that over or makes the solution easy. Yeah, you know. So that's one of the few good things. But it's it's actually it's the reason that I'll say I'm even though I don't like it. It's it's perfectly okay with me. The ten things I hate about you exists. Oh, okay. I'm fine with the fact that it exists <laughs> because it did some interesting things with the. With, with with feminism in a, in an inherently unfeministic story. Now there's a quote for the box. <laughs> I'm fine that it exists. David Max Battleship Pretension. <laughs> uh, so that's pretty much all I have to say about Taming the Shrew. Do you had because you haven't no, seen I either of those. No, uh, I've I've not read it. I haven't seen really any uh, adaptation of it. Okay, let's let's talk about it real quick. Because um, I said I mentioned earlier that 
some of the stories are a little run of the mill, even when the yeah, when the language is 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 great. Uh, one of the stories of his that I've really always just loved is the Tempest. Okay, uh, and I've seen two versions. I've seen Peter Greenaway's version, Prospero's books. Okay, uh, which is, I mean. It has a story in that it's the story of the Tempest, but it's essentially now. What is base? What is the story non- of the Tempest? Because I'm not. I, I don't think I'm familiar with it. Well, you've seen Forbidden Planet. Yes, I have. So you, there you go. You know the story. There's well, that's all I've got. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I get. There's a guy, uh, Prospero. I guess is his name. I'm bad with that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, and he has a daughter, okay. and they live sort of alone, uh, sequestered, like on an island. Okay. And then some other. People, uh, I guess, shipwreck on the island. Okay. Um, and uh, I don't know. I don't want to give too much away. I, I know you've seen Forbidden Planet, right. so you kind of know. Uh, you know, the daughter's very attractive. Yeah, it, that's part of the. Part I think of the I've story. heard a joke based on this uh, play. What is about it? a farmer's daughter? Oh, okay. is that, that is that right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of those. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, this play inspired <laughs> Forbidden Planet and all those farmer's uh, daughter books jokes. and all those farmer's daughter's, <laughs> daughter's jokes. Um. Anyway, uh, so yeah, people crash crash on the planet and sort of mess with this this eccentric guy and his daughter's sort of perfect world. Yeah. Um. Uh, and Prospero's books is Peter Greenaway's version, and people who know, let if you don't know a lot about Peter Greenaway, mm-hmm. let me say this: The Cook, the Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Is his most accessible film. <laughs> That's the kind of filmmaker Peter Greenaway. Is. That's the only one I've seen. And uh, wow, really? Yeah. Oh my. Prospero's books is insane. It's okay. mostly just. Uh, it's it's sort of an experimental film, which is there's a lot of um, uh, dissolves and superimpositions and uh, um, you know lots of use of the optical printer. Okay. Uh, and the and the, the main sort of I guess gimmick of it is even though there are other actors playing all, all the other parts mm-hmm. john gilgood as prospero is nominating not nominating narr- narrating the whole thing so he, yeah so when the other actors are talking they're just lip syncing along to john gilgood reading this, hmm. the play so the only voice you hear for the entire film is that of john gilgood <laughs> um <laughs> that's kind of accessible yeah no i i think you should watch it yeah uh because even though i mean the 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 technique and aesthetic is very very out there. Yeah. If you are, appreciate a good performance, I mean, this is John Gilgood acting out all yeah. of the Tempest for two hours. Yeah. You know, that's remarkable. Yeah, and it's done and it's done really well. So I'd recommend Prospero's books um, to people who want to see something really yeah uh, artsy fartsy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then of course, if you don't want to if you want to see the Tempest in a non artsy fartsy way, go rent Forbidden Planet because yeah. you know what? It's also great. It is really great. <laughs> I really enjoy the film. Yeah, Monsters of the Id. <laughs> yeah, um, so that's that's the Tempest. I guess the, there's not a whole lot more we need to to get to. There's much to do about nothing, which I've seen Kenneth Branagh's yeah. version of. And which I enjoy. Stars Denzel Washington and Emma Thompson and Robert Sean Leonard and yeah. uh, Michael who else Keaton. is it? Who, yeah, oh, Michael Keaton's Keaton. in it. Yeah. Who else? Who else is in it? Well, hang on. Let me think of like the great Shakespearean actors of our time. Um, right. uh, Kenneth Branagh obviously directed. Right. Yeah. Emma Thompson, no slouch. Yeah, absolutely, you know, absolutely. it's really just the whole that whole cast is really wonderful. Yeah, I, mean, uh, I, I feel like there's someone I'm leaving out though. Uh, Some great thespian. Oh my gosh, somebody who when I think Shakespeare, I think this person. Okay, when I think Shakespeare, okay, one of the greatest poets and playwrights of all time. Right, right. I have to think of an actor 
to equal that. Right, yeah. It's Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves oh. is in What You Do About Nothing. I'm frustrated that that wasn't at the forefront of my brain. That's very upsetting. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay, so that's good. Uh, did you ever see The Midsummer Night's Dream with Kevin Klein as Bottom? No, I didn't. It's great. I do enjoy it's that play. I've seen that play a lot. Yeah. Uh, high schools do it a lot. Yeah. And uh, I think high schools should probably steer clear of Shakespeare. Why is that? Cause oh, wait. No, I yeah. know exactly why. Yeah, because high school kids don't know what they're saying Yeah, most of the time, you yeah. know? Uh, but yeah, I've also seen *Midsummer Night's Dream* done in high school plays. But the movie that came out again, '99, I think. Yeah. Because uh, every movie that came out in 1999 was apparently brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, not that this is a br- it's brilliant, but it's it's well done. It's, yeah. It, you know, it, it's got Calista Flockhart in it, but it's also got Kevin Klein as Bottom, which is and uh, Rupert Everett, right, as uh, Puck. Yeah. Um, uh, Stanley Tucci. No, I'm sorry. Stanley, Stanley Tucci, Tucci is Puck. Puck. Rupert, Rupert Everett is. Uh, I don't remember the name of the, the character. King, whatever. Right. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer is yeah. in it. Um, and then yeah, it's mostly worth watching. I don't. Know, I feel like uh, Bottom is really sort of the breakout character of Midsummer's Night Dream because oh, yeah. he's not the thrust of the story at all. Not at all. But he is the one that everyone is like. If you're casting Midsummer Night's Dream, that's the one that guys want to play. Right. Is Bottom and, and Kevin Klein is great. Yeah. He's, oh, I, that seems like his kind of. He's role. the Michael Keaton of. Michael, oh, Ke- yeah. as, Michael Keaton is in Much Ado About Nothing as Kevin Klein is in Midsummer, Midsummer's Night Dream. Midsummer yeah. Night's Dream. Yeah. Um, and that one is takes place in the period, right? It's it's very no, it, it's it it's a period piece, but it doesn't take place in that period. Oh, I think okay. it takes place in oh uh, I want to say like around the turn of the century. Okay, I think uh, turn of the twentieth century, like yeah. late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. I think, but it's still maybe late, maybe nineteen twenties or something like that. But it still has all the fanciful elements yeah. of it. Of, yeah, of course, yes. Um, then there's okay, The Merchant of Venice, which I've never liked okay. because for the same reasons with Taming of the Shrew, where it's misogynist, Merchant of Venice is anti Semitic. You can't get around it. Right. It just is. Even though it has that great speech. Yeah. Uh and the character is the character is not two dimensional, I don't think. Uh huh. Um but it is possible for a three-dimensional, well-developed, fascinating character to still be kind of a negative yeah. stereotype and, 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 of and, sorts. I mean, the things that he does and then what happens to him just seem... It just reeks of anti-Semitism. Like yeah. uh, it, it seems almost as if it's... This guy's story was preordained by the fact that he is Jewish. Yeah. You know? Uh, that said, the version with Pacino yeah. is... Almost enough to make me like the movie because Pacino's great, Jeremy yeah. Irons is great. Yeah. Um, who else is in it? I don't recall. Uh, the dude who played Gareth on the British Office. Oh yeah, is in it. Mackenzie Crook, I believe his name is. Yes, that's right. That's yeah. right. Um, yeah, and that's that's one that I'm glad I didn't go see in the theater, but I'm glad yeah. I rented. I think that might actually be the last, the last really great Al Pacino performance um, because he's really. You know, a lot of people I say with I would say like with De Niro and Pacino have said that. Wait, was this before or after Simone? <laughs> <laughs> nice delivery on that one. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think like De Niro and Pacino, they're kind of they're kind of accused of sort of phoning things in mm-hmm. these days. And uh, even Pacino, who spends a lot of time yelling, um, is accused of phoning it in. I don't think he's phoning it in at all in Merchant Merchant of Venice. I think he's really. He is tackling that role with everything he's got. And yeah. you wouldn't think that his unmistakable New York accent would fit well with Shakespeare. Uh, but he really he really takes that character, makes it his own, and uh, 
And it is a really, I think, a really great performance. Probably, I think it's Pacino's last great performance. Not to imply he won't do another one. I mean, it's just the it's last, his most recent. Most recent great performance. Yeah. Yes, thank you. It's the best, best one I ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joel Siegel. Inside joke. Wait, didn't he die? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> why you so maybe him? now that's true. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know... The the cover we've talked about the show before, but if you don't know, the cover of the DVD for Ray says one of the best movies I ever saw, Joel Siegel, which is dumb because he was alive at the time, and it's not like it's it's a it's the the phrasing that you that tense is wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's supposed I've, to be I've ever seen right. You know, but there's a finality to the best I ever, yeah. I ever saw. But I, I don't know, maybe it, maybe that ended up being true. <laughs> Because he's dead now. Yes, yes. Oh, my. Uh, anyway, that's all that was on my list. Okay. Oh, why did you throw that? Okay, well, what about... we? I mentioned it earlier, Richard III. I've never seen any versions of it. Uh, now, I've, I saw um, the Lawrence Olivier. Every time I say Lawrence Olivier, I almost want to say Lawrence of Arabia. And it really bothers me. Or Lawrence, <laughs> Lawrence of Olivier. Of Olivier. Yeah. Um, but uh, so someday I'm sure I'm going to slip up and say that. Why is it just with Lawrence Olivier? I think it's because of the uh. Yeah, I think so. You know? Yeah. Because you don't do that with Lawrence Tierney. Yeah. Father of Maura Tierney. Is he really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Now I'm not sure if I'm right. I, I I'm pretty sure that's okay. Right. Look it up on your BlackBerry. I will. Um, on BlackBerry. But uh, but I did see. I, I also saw the. Um, the version with uh, Ian McKellen, back before I really oh, knew right. who Ian McKellen was, and uh, and of course it is an updating of of uh, it keeps the the original text, but it is an updating. You know, it takes place I think now like in the 30s or you know, okay. it, it kind of does what what Wells did with Julius Caesar. It takes place uh, kind of in a fascist country, might be Germany, might not be. You're not really sure, uh, but it takes place in that time period, and it's got a really good cast. Robert Downey Jr. is in it, uh, and he does a great job, but I gotta say, Ian McKellen is astounding, as one would assume. But he really every all the all the aspects, all the things surrounding what Richard the Third might have been. You know, like the idea of him being like gay and like a uh, like a pedophile and a horrible murderer and all those mm-hmm. kind of things. I mean. McKellen, McKellen just plays him with such just plays it as just this juicy role um, and I wouldn't say I wouldn't say he overplays him but I think he finds every everything in the role that there is to grab onto he just grabs right onto it and just gets everything he can out of it and he's just he's clearly having so much fun um, and it's it's a lot and it's fun to watch him have fun um, Ian McKellen, when he when he isn't that a great thing about Ian McKellen that he's yeah. he's got this sort of Lawrence Lawrence Olivier kind of yeah. like like cred, yeah. you know. But he's still like he does extras, you know, oh, yeah. and he, he, he's he he takes Gandalf yeah. seriously, but also he's having he's having a blast clearly. Yeah. And uh, Magneto, and Magneto, he, yeah. yeah. And uh, and so I really and while while I heard not great things about the. Uh, the AMC, the Prisoner. Um, I've heard that his performance in it is actually really interesting and and a lot of fun and just very wry and witty. Um, and so I highly recommend the art direction uh, for Richard III is really good. I believe that it was nominated for uh, for an Oscar uh, for art direction and costume design, and rightfully so. It's just it's a good looking film. 
but the acting is also uh, quite brilliant. Um, so I, I highly recommend that. Um, and then last but not least, uh, I will bring up, I've talked about it before, I'll talk about Chimes at Midnight, which is uh, a combination of several uh, different Shakespearean plays in which... Okay, I'm totally wrong about Maura Tierney. Oh, okay. <laughs> is that just something you assumed for a long time? I think I must have. Okay. <laughs> Are you okay? David's going to die. <coughs> I'll keep talking while David dies. <coughs> okay. um, anyway, so so it's directed by Orson Welles, and he kind of cobbled this thing together out of uh, several, uh, I believe, five plays in which the character of, Fa- of Falstaff is a supporting role. So he takes all of Falstaff's scenes, puts them together, uh, and of course he trims some. There's not mm. a lot from Merry Wives of Windsor, in which Falstaff is kind of the lead. Um but uh, so he takes all of Falstaff's scenes, so that all of a sudden, this man who showed up in a lot of Shakespeare plays, mm-hmm. um, he's now the lead, and you actually see him as this incredibly tragic character who is also very funny. And it really, I, I feel like Orson Welles probably viewed Falstaff as uh, Shakespeare's most dynamic character and most certainly most fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and Welles actually had done had done this much earlier when he was a kid. Uh, he did a play called Five Kings in which he took all the... He he basically did what I'm talking about where he just took all those plays, put them together so that Falstaff is the is the main character and it wound up being... And didn't trim much and it wound up being like a four-hour failure. Uh, <laughs> like, it just he... He didn't have enough rehearsal and it was just this crazy experiment but uh even though everyone agrees that the play itself was not very good and didn't work out very well he was still fascinated with getting this up on just getting people to realize just how fascinating Falstaff is and I would venture to say it is Orson Welles best performance Hmm. better than Kane better than Hank Quinlan better than Harry Lyme and and I have Better than Stranger. He's good in this. I really like him in The Stranger. Uh, yeah. I, I think he's he's got a lot of really great performances, and I'd say most of them are in his own films. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I know The Third Man is not his film. I want to make sure nobody there's not any confusion mm. with that. Yeah. Um, but uh, and I have a, I have a theory as to why he put so much into Falstaff, and it's uh, the it's it's my own little theory that. Uh, Falstaff is a lot like uh, Orson Welles' father, and uh, Welles uh, Lawrence Tierney, Lawrence Ti- right? Yes, <laughs> as we all know, Orson <laughs> Welles and Maura Tierney were brother and sister. Um, but it was like a Star Wars situation; they never knew. Uh-huh. And so, um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, and so, uh, yeah. And Welles, at an early age, kind of discarded his father because Welles was a genius. And his father was this drunk merrymaker, and Wells was kind of embarrassed of him and kind of turned his back on him. And then his father died when Wells was, I believe, 15. And so there are some definite comparisons between Falstaff and Prince Harry, um, who goes on to become, you know, Henry V. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea of Falstaff as being this wonderful mentor and just this jolly man who means nobody any... It bears no one any ill will, and Harry loves being with him, but when it comes time for Harry to grow up and realize his potential, he has to discard Falstaff, and then Falstaff dies, ostensibly of a broken heart. And 
And so I think Wells saw a lot of parallels there, and I think he always regretted uh, the way he treated his father and uh, put all of that into the character of Falstaff. And I think you actually will find uh, just that kind of obsession. There's, there has to be, there's got to be something personal going on. And he was virtually obsessed with people, with Falstaff. And so, um, so, but Chimes at Midnight, it's just a wonderful film, not even just because of his performance, but the way he directs it. Um, it's kind of a mix between Othello and Macbeth, where some of it's a little stagey, but he's not afraid to open it up and go out on like a battlefield. And, and he's also not afraid in the midst of a big battle to have moments of comedy because Falstaff, this big, fat, jolly man, he puts him in armor that quite frankly makes him look like a tea kettle <laughs> um and so it's funny in the midst of like all these people dying to see this big tea kettle running around with a comically small sword and um <laughs> and so it's it's a it's really a wonderful film it's not really it's available to like buy on amazon and like a you know in a non-american release uh mm-hmm. a dvd release and I haven't purchased it because I'm sure that the minute I do, Criterion or Kino will say, uh-huh. hey, guess what we're releasing? Uh, and in, in a beautiful, cleaned up uh, uh, print. And so so I've, I've, I haven't really sought it out, but I, I keep waiting for the announcement because it'll happen sooner or later. Um, but uh, but if, you, if you have the opportunity to see it, I highly recommend seeking it out. Chimes at Midnight, it's amazing. Okay, well, I, I think right. we've talked about all the Shakespeare we can handle. Indeed. All the Shakespeare that's that's fit to print. Indeed. Uh, so, um, again, I want to remind you guys about February 6th at Meltdown Comics on Sunset Boulevard here yeah. in, in sunny Los Angeles. If it's happening. Uh, if that is the date, which we're pretty sure it is. Yeah. And hopefully, but certainly by the time this epi- episode goes up, we'll know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, um, uh uh, and you know you can follow me on Twitter for updates about that. But um, uh, February sixth, 8, eight p.m. at Meltdown Comics, five dollars to get in, free beer. You got you got us. You got front of the show Ed Salazar. You got front of the show Paul Rust. You got great front of the show Josh Fatum. Yeah, and you've got the also front of the show, but the the uh, the wonderfully talented and I'm told the podcast ho- podcast host in his own right. Yeah, Jimmy Pardo. Yeah, uh, and and more to be announced. Yes. Um. One more to be announced. We right. just need some confirmation. Uh, so it's going to be a blast. We're going to it's going to be uh, really funny. We're going to talk about movies, and um, I, you know, I'm going to make sure to get a haircut. It's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so you can. Uh, oh, and then of course, uh, donation button still there. As is the donation subscription button, which uh, you don't feel a thing, Tyler. You don't feel a thing. <laughs> All right, you click on that. You put in your PayPal account, your your checking account, a, a credit card, whatever you want it to be. It's up to you. This is up to you. All right? And uh, and $2 a month will automatically be deducted from the account, uh, and, it, and it will last for one year. Total of $24, but not all at once. So as David said, you don't, you feel, don't feel a thing. thing. Uh, but it will, it will help us out considerably. Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that would be great. It would really help. Um, yeah. In addition to that, of course, there's uh, you can find us at our website is battleshipretention.com where there's occasional blog updates and, and movies of the week. But you know, we really probably uh, should change that to movie of the month. <laughs> is but that I, a, is about what about what it is? Uh, every three weeks, I'd say. Okay, um, 
but uh, uh, yeah. Uh, also, obviously, if you if you listen and you don't subscribe, it would help us if you did subscribe. It's for free; doesn't hurt. Yeah. You know, you won't feel a thing. Yeah. Go to iTunes. Uh, you can write us a review in iTunes. That's also free; you won't feel a thing. Right. Um, <laughs> you can uh, also for free. You can follow either of us on Twitter. I, David, am at, at the Pretension. Yeah. Tyler is at More Lessons, which is the official Twitter of his uh, solo podcast, More Than One Lesson. That's right. Uh, which can be found at morethanonelesson dot com. That's right. So uh, I think that's about it. Yeah. Um, and we will get you next time. All right. Bye. Bye.